Since 1931, Financial Executives International has been the leading advocate for the views of corporate financial management. Its more than 10,000 members hold policy-making positions as chief financial officers, chief accounting officers, controllers and treasurers at companies from every major industry. And FEI enhances its members' professional development through peer networking, career management services, conferences, research, and publications. Join FEI today to network with key influencers, understand emerging issues, advocate for corporate finance, and boost your career opportunities. Both individual and corporate membership options are available. Go to www.financialexecutives.org and click on Become a Member, or look for the link in this episode's show notes. Hi, this is Chris Westfall, and this is the Financial Executive Podcast. It didn't take long following the most recent banking crisis for the conversation to turn to a debate around accounting and disclosure, particularly the fair value and hold maturity treatment that financial institutions employ around the securities on their balance sheets. In this episode of the podcast, we speak with Robert Posen, currently a senior lecturer at the MIT School of Management. Before entering academics, Bob was steeped in the world of investing and financial reporting as vice chairman of Fidelity Management and chairman of MFS Investment Management. Besides teaching, he is also a trustee of the IFRS Foundation, which oversees International Financial Reporting Standards Center. And the reason I wanted to speak to you is because of a lot of the debate that's going on around right now. Well, I don't know if it's debate, but a lot of discussion around fair value accounting uh, in the in the um, aftermath of Silicon Valley Bank and and some other banks and what's going on in, in the finance industry. And, and you have a, a, a very deep uh, history with with you know how this works with investors, financial services. And accounting, so maybe we could just start and, and get your perspective since you have that history. How does the current banking crisis, you know, fit into the longer-term narrative of of you know the intersection between investors, you know, banks and accounting? Okay, <clears throat> well, this crisis uh, involving Silicon Valley Bank in the last few weeks is really very different than the. 2008-2009 crisis. In 2008 and the years leading up to it, uh, there was a tremendous amount of mortgage-backed securities that were produced. Much of it, many of the mortgage-backed securities were um, privately sponsored uh, as part of uh, uh, <coughs> a bank-sponsored uh, trust that then bought the uh, mortgages and sold off tranches. And the key problem in 2008 was that many of these mortgages turned out not to be good, that they had credit problems, credit defaults. So the striking thing about Silicon Valley Bank is that it does not involve credit defaults at all because the securities that were held in their portfolio were a combination of treasuries and uh, 
the type of mortgage-backed securities that were 100% guaranteed for principal and interest by the federal government. Those were Ginnie Mae's, Fannie Mae's, uh, Freddie Mac's. So, so it's a very different sort of crisis, and therefore the accounting issues are very different. So how, how would you describe the differences in the accounting issues between 2008 and today? Well, in 2008, we were, we were concerned about how accurately uh, financial institutions were accounting for the, the, the credit risks that were involved. And there was also a freezing up of the short-term credit markets after Lehman Brothers' demise. And so there was this question about, you know, what, how did you, how did you uh, measure, what was the fair market value of the securities that you held? And uh, there were level one, level two, and level three, uh, depending on the amount of uh, liquidity that was involved. And there were lots of securities at that time which were relatively illiquid. There wasn't a liquid trading market. And so there was a lot of debate about how to accurately value them. And um, there were some of them, um, there were, there were uh, major liquidations. And so those were considered uh, forced sales and the prices were not viewed as uh, related to an orderly process. And so they were, the SEC put out an interpretation saying, you don't have to follow those prices if they weren't a result of an orderly liquidation. And other securities really didn't trade very often. So they had to use matrix pricing and the debate was all uh, focused on how accurately you could uh, account for these securities, uh, given the fact that many of them had low liquidity and there were uh, potential credit defaults. As I said, in Silicon Valley Bank, uh, the securities in their portfolio were uh, mainly treasuries and mortgage-backed securities that were guaranteed in principal and interest uh, by the uh, federal government. So those markets were pretty liquid and were continued to be quite liquid. So there wasn't that sort of valuation problem. The real, the real problem that arose in Silicon Valley Bank was this other tripartite uh, categorization of securities in the accounting world. So when, when a bank uh, brought in a lots of new deposits, which was what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, they doubled or tripled their deposits in a few years. They had a hard time putting that money to work in assets and at the time, there, were, there was a relatively low yield on short-term securities. So they reached for yield and wound up buying 
uh, longer-term treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Uh, so you had what 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 was viewed as a, a classic case of bad duration matching, where you had the the duration of your liabilities was very short because something close to 90% of the deposits, liabilities in Silicon Valley Bank were uninsured. They were above the $250,000 limit. So therefore they were very fickle. They would move very quickly if the bank solvency was at issue. And on the other hand, they matched those short-term deposits with longer-term treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Now, we allow banks to classify the securities they hold in their portfolio in one of three buckets. And so one of them is the trading bucket, and those have to be valued uh, on a daily basis given their trading prices and fair, val fair market values very clear. On the other hand, there are what's called HTM, held to maturity uh, investment securities. And those, we allow the banks not to mark them to market. So <clears throat> even if, uh, as the case was here, uh, they're, they're, the value that would be uh, attainable if they were sold was significantly below their face value. We don't require that the bank do that. And we now have, I would say, many, many banks in which if we mark uh, the held to maturity securities to market, uh, it would eat up most, if not all, of their capital. But we don't require that. Now, uh, you can argue back and forth whether that's a good thing or not. We, we've allowed that accounting because um, we're, we don't want to have a very unstable portfolio. We want to keep stability. And in most cases, uh, they're held to maturity and are in fact held to maturity. If you hold these bonds to maturity, they will definitely pay off in full because they're either treasuries or mortgage-backed securities guaranteed by the federal government. So if you have a bank, and many of the regional banks are in this category that have relatively few uninsured deposits, that is, they're 80 to 90% insured under the $250,000 limit, then the chances of people leaving very quickly and requiring that you sell your HTM uh, securities are actually pretty low. Uh, and so that's very appropriate. But where you have a, a bank that has very fickle deposits because there's so many, there. They were not only uninsured, they're very highly concentrated. And that's, that's really a problem. The third category, which is um, uh, the most ambiguous is AFS, available for sale. 
And those securities um, are generally not marked to market, but the bank regulators have uh, sometimes required that they that they have be accounted for on fair market value for the very large systemically risky banks. So that's the very ambiguous category. And generally, if, if you have an available for sale uh, portfolio, Silicon Valley wasn't marking it to market. And uh, uh, so that, that's a much bigger issue because presumably by marking it available for sale rather than held to maturity, there was a substantial possibility that it would be sold before maturity. And so I think that's the crux of the problem here. The crux of the problem, as I said, is not a credit default problem, not a credit at all. It's a duration mismatch. And then uh, you got to look at both uh, what is the nature, the duration nature of the liabilities and what in practice is the risk of their being withdrawn. And you got to um, look against that. Uh, what's the nature of the securities uh, that are where they're invested and what's the duration of those securities. And it's because the Fed raised rates so quickly and we had, uh, you know, uh, a, a substantial increase that those longer term treasuries and mortgage backed securities, uh, if marked to market, would have had a, quite a big loss. And that's still true in many banks. So, I mean, there, there are two possible solutions. This is one of your other questions. I mean, one is to say we shouldn't allow AFS uh, to be to be held at at its original cost or par value. We should require that anything that's not held to maturity uh, be marked to market, and that's sort of more or less the way the regulators tend to treat. Um, available for sales securities and in the small number of very large banks. But you could argue that you need to do that. You need to mark those to market in all banks. And um, held to maturity is a lot more controversial whether you really need to mark those to market. But I like to distinguish what, what we would have as an accounting matter from what we have as a disclosure matter. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I wanted to really focus on is 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 why that is. Well, I think we 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 as I said have a good rationale for allowing held to maturity securities not to be marked to market because they're they they're guaranteed by the federal government, therefore there won't be a credit default. If you hold them to maturity, they'll be money good. So, so therefore it's reasonable 
in most cases, not to ask that those be um, marked to market. But, but we need to have better disclosures to investors as to what are the risks involved. And so investors should know what's the size of the held to maturity bucket, what's the size of the AFS bucket, and if they were marked to market, how much loss they would have to take. And third of all, they need to understand a lot better the nature of the liabilities. So even if you decide, as we have decided, that HTM securities don't have to be marked to market, we should have a lot more disclosure about them so investors really understand what, what the risks are involved. Can I ask one follow-up question on that? Because if I understand it correctly, um, you know, what happened, you know, is it really an investor issue or is it a depositor issue? Because the, the uh, what happened at Silicon Valley Bank was sort of a, if I understand it correctly, a classic run in the bank where depositors took out money. It wasn't necessarily that investors were cashing out, although they eventually did when deposits started to go right. out. Would, would that disclosure apply to uh, depositors as well? well? I would say it was a disclosure issue for both depositors and investors, because in the first instance, it's a disclosure issue to depositors as to what's the risk that their deposits would not be paid uh, if, if the bank went into insolvency and what were the risk of the bank becoming insolvent. And second of all, it's an it's a equity owner, you know, the equities of banks, and so they're the ones who in Silicon Valley Bank and any bank that goes bankrupt that would have to take the losses. Uh, historically in the U.S., we have been extremely reluctant uh, to make uh, uninsured depositors actually take losses. Uh, that's very rarely happened. Uh, and uh, I believe that what's called IndyMac in the 2007-8 thing, that was a case in which depositors took uh, some losses. But even now, I mean, Silicon Valley, all the depositors, even the uninsured, the ones above 250,000, the uninsured depositors were made whole. And so, and that was true of Signature Bank too. And, and the reason is that a lot of those uh, uninsured depositors are transaction accounts that are held by companies. Uh, and so there are significant economic issues that are involved with that. Uh, in the 2008 area, we, we actually had a program for insuring transaction accounts, which were much larger than 250,000. And banks could pay a little extra insurance premium and insure those. So, uh, so I would say the disclosure applies uh, chronologically 
first to the depositors, the uninsured depositors, as to whether they should stay around or not. And second of all, to the equity owners of the bank, since they're going to get wiped out if the bank went into insolvency. In fact, because uh, the government has tended to protect uninsured depositors, uh, it's really the equity holders who are taking more practical risk because they are not being bailed out. Let me ask you this. So, I mean, what would that practically mean? Because, you know, a lot of discussion or the things I've read over the past couple weeks since this has happened, and I can't believe it's happened that quickly, but it's only been a couple of weeks, is, um, you know, like I said, there's discussion about fair value accounting, how it's applied. So, um, is, it, is your argument that the accounting rules are solid? It's how they're technically disclosed? And, and how do you solve that problem? In- well, I think there are two different questions. One is how we should account for these securities on the balance sheet of the bank on a monthly, quarterly basis. And second of all, assuming that you decide for the HTM health and maturity securities that you're not gonna require that they be marked to market, what sort of disclosures should accompany the bank's financial statements so that they would be informative to both uninsured depositors and equity holders? And all I'm saying is you could come out with a very different answer. You can decide, and I think we will decide, to continue to allow HCM securities not to be marked to market, but we do need a lot better disclosures about what the risks are of that accounting treatment to both uninsured depositors and equity holders. So is that your expectation, uh, you know, going forward, obviously, you know, from where you're sitting, um, you know, do you think it, given your experience, do you think that's the path forward that regulators and other stakeholders will will focus on? I think that is the path forward for the HTM securities. For available for sales securities, I would predict that the regulators become more aggressive about requiring them to be marked to market in a wider range of financial institutions. Remember, the Fed has done uh, two things with Signature and Silicon Valley Bank. It's protected the uninsured depositors and more or less seems to be saying that for other banks, that would be in a similar situation. Uh, They would seriously consider protecting the uninsured depositors. They've tried not to actually guarantee it, but it's pretty hard to see the regulators not protecting the uninsured depositors if other major regional banks uh, became insolvent. But, They also said, you can come to the Fed and you can give us your treasuries or MBS securities 
at par and will let you borrow based on that value as collateral. So if you held 20 billion in treasury securities, which mark to market only be worth 18 billion, you can, you can borrow 20 billion from the Fed, not 18. So that's why I think that uh, they're unlikely to change that accounting treatment of L to maturity. Let me ask you a, a sort of a practical question. Um, I mean, obviously, given your experience in the fund industry and in the private sector, um, you know, and there's a certain lag period, obviously, between um, what regulators and standard setters do and, and what's going on in the market right now. What would you focus on if you're if you're in the private market and you had a lot of assets in the banks? What are the risks you'd focus on at those particular banks? What are the trigger points that you think about? Well, I think if we take a step back, and I'm going to answer your question a little broadly, is essentially the regulators were fighting the last war. The last war was a credit default problem and a question of how you uh, arrive at a reasonable price for securities that were pretty illiquid. Here, the securities had no credit default risk and were relatively liquid, in which you could get a price. But they, and from all reports, did not focus in these stress tests on the mismatch between liabilities and assets. So the most important thing is that the Fed gets smart and realize that there are two very different scenarios and they ought to be testing for both of them. They were testing for recession based on the notion that you would have loan defaults and things like that because that's what happened last time. But this time with the very sharp and quick rise in interest rates, uh, it was a duration matching problem and they didn't do that. So I think as an investor, I would predict a very, at a very high level of confidence, the Fed will change that. And the Fed will now be looking, Fed and other bank regulators will now be looking closely at duration matching. Uh, and will, even though we don't require that these HDM securities be marked to market, they will require a lot more disclosure about the the nature of the duration matching, which goes to how fickle are the liabilities and uh, how underwater are the assets. I guess one final question for you before we wrap up. How difficult do you think that challenge is, is putting those disclosures in? I don't think it's, I don't think it's that difficult. I don't, I don't think it's that difficult because we, we have pretty sophisticated tools for duration matching. Uh, and we, we know, and the regulators know, and the banks know, what percentage of their uh, deposits are above the 250,000 level, how concentrated they are. And you can derive pretty well a probability uh, of uh, withdrawals. And, and you know what the mark to market you can acquire 
that it, you can disclose what it would be if you mark the market those HDM securities without actually requiring them. You don't you don't want to put all these banks into insolvency by requiring them now today. From now on, we're going to force you to put the HDM uh, securities. Uh, to put them on your balance sheet of fair market value. If we did that, we'd have a whole slew of insolvency. And there's no reason to do that because it's a timing problem. And over time, uh, uh, those securities will pay off. It's a question uh, during that time whether they'll have enough liquidity. And now we'll see. I mean, banks... Because of these very, because of the discount window, we see a lot more borrowing at the discount window of the traditional program, and then we have this new program of uh, at what I call at par borrowing, and then people also can borrow from banks can also borrow from the federal loan loan bank system. So, so there are a lot of sources of liquidity, and you're seeing them drawn upon now. Uh, and that will uh, give more confidence to uninsured depositors and to equity holders. It's not, you know, what I'm suggesting is that we not put these banks into insolvency by requiring fair market value, but that we give depositors and investors a lot more information about the duration matching and the nature of the risk that they're taking. And I think those those disclosures are pretty easy to do. It was very difficult in 2008 to require accurate fair market value of illiquid securities. We had to engage in matrix pricing and things like that. And then people argued that there were, there were some of these prices were result of the abrupt liquidations and they weren't orderly and therefore shouldn't be taken into account. None of that's really true here. We, we The banks know, the regulators know all these numbers. Uh, so I don't think it would be that difficult uh, to require their disclosure. How often they would should be required, how much detail people, those are reasonable, debatable questions.